0: Welcome to the It's On All Of Us podcast. I'm your presenter, Nance Haxton. In this episode, we speak to two Griffith University experts, Professor Patrick O'Leary and Megan Sharp, about what respectful relationships and consent is really all about. It's part of the Safe Campuses Initiative Sexual Harassment Awareness and Prevention Campaign. We'll be having a conversation about sometimes difficult topics, looking at what harassment and assault actually is, asking what should we do about disrespectful behaviour in the university setting, and also how best to report incidences of concern. If you're wondering how to do that, we'll be talking about the role of the bystander too, and the support that's available. And we'll look at the full spectrum of the community who this affects and how violence extends much further than heterosexual relationships.
1: I'm Professor Patrick O'Leary and uh, I'm the Director of the Violence Research and Prevention Programme at Griffith University, part of Griffith uh, Institute of Criminology.
2: I'm Megan Sharp. I'm the Project Officer for Student Safety and Wellbeing at Griffith University.
0: Welcome to the It's On All Of Us podcast. Patrick, if we can start with you just regarding It's On All Of Us. I mean, it kind of sums up the whole campaign, really, doesn't it? But let's flesh that out a bit. What does that really mean when we're talking about consent and relationships?
1: Well, it's about a collective a responsibility and if we can change attitudes of people on campus the whole Griffith community that means that people will speak up on behalf of their friends and colleagues and notice things when things aren't right because we can't be surveilling people we need everyone to be uh, looking out for each other so the responsibility is a really collective idea that If you know something isn't right, maybe it's time to check in with that person.
0: It's such a multifaceted issue, isn't it? What's some of that research shown, Megan?
2: So ahead of 2021, it's on All of Us Week, uh, we have done a survey that's been led by the public health students and preliminary responses that are coming through from that survey at the moment are indicating that students are really, really interested in hearing more about consent uh, in relationships and how to recognise or understand better harassment and assault in relationships. So already this year our counselling team through our Council for Violence, Response and Prevention have implemented a Respectful Relationships program um, which at the moment is being run just for female identifying students. Again, that's been in response to... What our students are presenting with when they're in the counselling room. So what are the kinds of issues, what are the kinds of things that those students are indicating that they would like more help with? And so that then covers things like setting boundaries in a relationship, like understanding what what a healthy relationship looks like, what some red flags might be for an unhealthy relationship, but really understanding and empowering um, an individual in a relationship to be able to set some boundaries and to be able to be uh, assertive, I suppose, when they need to be.
0: Sounds like there's a bit of confusion there within the relationship as well, that intimate partner in your life. Do you have any insights into that or advice, perhaps, Patrick, for people in a relationship? How do you do that ongoing negotiation of consent?
1: Well, I think there's a couple of things that are worth thinking about here and that that is you know we've had some conversations about coercive control and sometimes when we think about coercive control i think about grooming which we often associate with sexual assault of children but we also in adult relationships and new relationships grooming can occur where you know someone builds someone trust trust but the motivation behind that behavior is to manipulate and get their own way and and that makes it really difficult to tell, on occasions, because what might seem like a good act, behind that act, is actually not an okay intention or motivation, and so it, it's challenging to recognise that. But when we do feel uncomfortable, like oh why did they do? now they've given me this gift, I feel that I have to do this, and that's a really important. Thing to recognise.
0: Listen to those alarm bells.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Or I wasn't really expecting them to turn up uh, at my workplace to pick me up or after my shoot. They're saying they're doing it because they really wanted to see me but I feel really controlled by this.
0: Is that the time to talk to someone? Would you recommend, Patrick?
1: Yeah, yeah. And it, it might be it might be about talking to that person it might be about talking to a friend or a professional or saying look I actually need to have a conversation about that it's not okay to do those things without checking in with me I think recognizing those subtleties are really important and I think you know often people are looking for because last year we had a uh, webinar uh, and we deliberately didn't call it Um, about domestic violence or coercion we we talked was about difficult behaviors yep coping with difficult behaviors and i'm sure every person listening to this has had to cope with a difficult behavior before from a friend or a colleague or a partner because we don't want to see it name it as violence or that because that's that can be confronting but it but recognising those difficult behaviours that put you in an awkward position is so, so critically important.
2: And I think, Patrick, it opens up a conversation that we can have as bystanders as well. So as a friend or a colleague, a family member of someone who you're watching, they're in this potentially new relationship, potentially long-term relationship, and you're perhaps noticing things you know, in, in the dynamics of that relationship which don't quite sit right with you. So I think it's about I think being brave enough also as a bystander to have conversations with, with that, per- you know, with, with your friend, with your loved one to say, oh, hey, I've noticed that. You know, is that is that just how you guys roll or does that bother you? Like, that would really bother me. Like, is that okay with yeah, you? Yeah. You're really incredible for putting up with that. Wow. And, you know, and you might be met sometimes with, oh, yeah, that's just, you know, that's just how we work. Like, it's fine. But other times you might be opening a door there. That person is thinking now, Okay, someone else has seen that, and someone else doesn't really think that's okay either, and that's what makes me feel really awful. So, okay then. So I've you know that, again I come back to that point of being validated, that experience and that um, I guess response and emotion has been validated, and so that then in turn opens a door to that person perhaps talking to you more about that or seeking support elsewhere from a professional or whoever it might be, a friend or family member also. I'm sure most of us in our lifetime have had a friend or had a, a sibling who's entered into a relationship and you've thought, oh, that's a bit odd. Oh, I mean, I can't believe they put up with that or, you know, whatever those little thoughts might be. But, and I, I think I go back right to the beginning of the conversation where Patrick mentioned that many moons ago you didn't talk about it. You didn't. You know, you didn't involve yourself in someone else's relationship. That was their business and no one else's. And so we all just sat on the sidelines thinking these things to ourselves and no one ever said anything. Where I think we've shifted there too where people should feel more confident about reaching out to a friend to, and, and to check in. And I think it's scary because everyone's scared that they'll be met with that, oh, yeah, everything's fine. Can't believe you said that. But I I'd have to say the more time I spend in this space, the more... I think it would be more a case of you might still be met with a bit of a a terse initial reaction, but I think the impact long-term that you might have on that person by letting them know that you've seen something and it's perhaps not okay. Because I think, you know, when when you're in a relationship, you've got your your rose-coloured glasses on and you go along with things, where if you've got a few people saying, oh, is that, oh, that's interesting, that's not quite right, I'm not, that doesn't seem good to me, then maybe it's about other people raising those yeah. red flags for you as well.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's something that we know from the research, you know, those little microaggressions where people feel that something said to them has a double edge to it or where you feel like, I just need to try harder to keep this person happy, or, or their happiness depends a bit on what I'm doing, are uh, some real warning signs, and some signs that we often see in, in the, uh, for, for survivors of uh, violence and partner abuse is that they, they often feel if they only did this, he would be okay. And those can start in sort of quite micro things from not, you know, not the large things, but from quite micro things. I don't do that because it annoys him. And that's where shame starts, because then you start to do your blame of yourself for someone else's but not okay behavior. And that's part of that manipulation and grooming.
0: It's such a multifaceted issue, isn't it? Because perhaps, there, like you say, you might know something is not right, but actually taking the next step to say something about it is another thing altogether, isn't
1: it? Absolutely. And particularly when we think about things like sexual harassment, rela- intimate relationships, sometimes we've, we've had that long history in society where this is the what happens behind closed doors. I mean, that was one of the key issues in the you know, 80s and 90s about domestic violence behind closed doors. We want to open those doors and open those doors on our campus to be transparent about our stand, our values, about safety, people's safety. And that's where the It's On All Of Us came from. It's about everyone's responsibility for everyone's safety.
0: And you're saying you feel that this has been quite student driven, and that's why it's been a bit quite effective.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We're we're trying to to more about engaging the student community, and we're we're looking. We're not differentiating between staff and students. We're seeing it as a collective responsibility, and we need their participation. We what we most want is people who haven't thought about this or haven't had a chance to engage with things, to be coming to events. And the best way to do that is through people hearing about this through their peers. You know, as much as someone like myself or Megan can talk about this, if you hear it for a mate or a friend, it has a totally different impact.
0: Megan, is that what you find too, of course, in your role, that it's trying to engage people and making this more of a topic of discussion.
2: Absolutely. And I think, as Patrick just alluded to, staff such as ourselves can kind of get on our soapbox and talk about this all day long. We can draft emails to be sent out, but... That's never as impactful as a peer going to another peer and saying, oh, look, this is really important. We really need to engage in this. Or, you know, have you seen that this is coming up? That peer-to-peer voice is really, really powerful. And so we really need to, I guess, harness that and make the most of that, which is why it's been really good to work with the Masters of Public Health students this year to put together the It's On All of Us Week activities.
0: So it was a pretty collaborative approach. Can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, it was. So um, in previous years, we've taken more of a generic working party approach and at times we've had some student input into that as well. But this year I followed the lead of a colleague who'd worked with some public health students in the I guess planning and preparation for mental Uni Mental Health Week last year. I thought, oh that was really interesting. Some of the ideas that the students came up with were just a bit different to anything that I suppose a a collection of staff had ever thought of. Were you a bit surprised
0: by the sound of it? Yeah, yeah.
2: So I thought, oh, let's give that a go for It's On All Of Us as well and see what different ideas student minds might be able to come up with that then might be naturally more engaging to their fellow peers.
0: And what were uh, some of the ideas that came forward from the students, particularly those ones that
2: surprised you? In Uni Mental Health Week, I think it was just um, some more practical and hands-on things, so less of the being talked at at different seminars and things, and more, um, I mean, for, for mental health and well-being, it was things like meditations and affirmation cards and things like that, really very practical things. And for, for this week, actually, this podcast was like, oh, that is something I had never, ever thought of doing. That's amazing. That's incredible. It's a resource we'll now have ongoing. It's not just a one-off. So yeah, I'm really excited.
0: And I suppose it shows to Patrick as well that people are really craving information, aren't they? Even if they're not actually saying it as such, I think this issue of consent is really quite fuzzy for want of a a better term but I think people really find it quite confusing to navigate. Would you agree?
1: Uh, Absolutely and I think it's an issue that we're having a a more public conversation about at the moment. We've had such a, a year where we begin with seeing where it can happen in the highest possible offices but also a conversation that shows that it's a complex concept, that it can't just be something that's regulated or put on an app. There's
0: no um, rules for this, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in a sense. yeah.
1: The, the nature of consent being um, provisional is something that I think uh, sometimes we've struggled with around, you know, that we can change our position, you know. We can say yes and then later during or or, or, or at a later point say actually no this is as far as I want it to go. And I think that's really so critical in understanding consent and our values.
0: It has ripple effects, really doesn't it, for so many other issues in the community as you would have seen from the decades of research you've done in this area. It seems to be almost the start, the starting point for going into so many other... Domestic violence, so many um, coercive control issues. It starts with a healthy understanding, or otherwise, of consent.
1: Absolutely, and and, and it's really important to, to note the, you know, the changes that have occurred around consent. You know, historically, in marriage, rape could not occur in marriage, and now we've we've reformed that. But there's still a lot of the residue remains about those sorts of. Fundamentally, gender discriminatory rules that were enshrined in law that clouded the issues of consent. So, really, you not know, like it's that generation; it's on all of us, particularly today's generation, to change that narrative.
0: Have you found that with the students that you've spoken to as well? I mean, at times, has it been a bit surprising that some of those perhaps old-fashioned attitudes still remain?
2: Absolutely, Nancy. And it's something that we cover in our recognised Respond, Refer um, training. So that's it. It's a Responding to Disclosures training program. We introduce these, the concepts of w- what is it that we're talking about? What are all the kinds of behaviours that, that make up what we call personal violence here at Griffith? And how did we get here? So how did we get here in terms of what are the attitudes and behaviours in the community that have led to a lot of the common things that we cover? So we we go through in that training program with staff and with students different attitudes and behaviours that have normalised behaviours, um, the fact that oftentimes those attitudes are quite unconscious. They're just things, they're remarks and comments and behaviours that you have been brought up with in your lifetime and so you get to a point where you don't even notice these things. Um, and quite often uh, myself and, and Lauren, one of the counselors for violence, response and prevention. And Jamie, we'll talk about times when we were younger in our careers and uh, certainly myself, I'd be walking through the CBD off to my traineeship in the in the government and there would be construction sites and not a morning went by that I couldn't get from the train central train station to 111 George Street without having wolf whistles and calls and, and all these different things. And at the time, I was just like, oh, you know, put your head down, cross the road, it'll be all right, can't do anything about it. I would like to see the me of today now take that that walk from, you know, Central Station through to 111 George Street. I think I've learned a whole lot about attitudes and behaviours and about how those things aren't okay. They did make me feel uncomfortable, which means that they weren't okay. But it was such a normal thing, like everyone just dealt with it. Everyone put up with it. So it's interesting to take both staff and students through that journey as part of the training and about how these are things. And so it doesn't make you a bad person that perhaps you have some of these thoughts or you do normalise behaviours Or you don't notice things. It's how you've been conditioned. It's how you've been brought up. It's now time to actually give ourselves a moment, though, to take a step back, have a think about those things, and then maybe then determine what our response is to different remarks or conversations or situations.
0: So true, isn't it? Because it's it's recognising that, as you say, it comes from the generations before us, really. And how do we change the way that we speak about this for the generations to come? Yep, absolutely. I, when I think of even in my reporting experience, I think of when I started as a cadet, we were told quite openly do not report about domestic violence when we did the police beat because people don't want to read about that, you know. It was a bit too too confronting for people to read over their breakfast, but that has changed in 20 years as well. So how do we change this uh, attitude's about consent do you think?
1: The first step is, is about having that conversation about the complexities and the different meanings around consent and the conversation is the most important thing because we know that this has different meanings for men and women in terms of where they position themselves and it's a, I think it comes down to that values position rather than sort of looking purely at the dynamics of of consent you know what do decent people do? What do decent people show and respect? And that underlies, you know, this whole week of It's on All of Us is about the values of about caring for our colleagues, our peers, our friends, our general sort of people we come in and call strangers even. And I think it's recognising that diversity. And consent isn't purely about uh, sex, it's 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 much, much more than that. It's about the consent Of how we engage, how we interact, how we physically locate ourselves, the sorts of questions we ask, the sorts of relationships we have. And it's really interesting, you know, in looking at building the building blocks for consent with young children, you know. Simple things around turn-taking, asking for things. Are the building blocks about respect, but they're also the building blocks around consent. And so we're all have that subjectivity to us and that's what makes relationships exciting because they're subjective and we need to tune into that.
2: I think it's really important. I mean, there's some really um, exciting little clips out now, I mean, they've been out for a few years now, the TN Consent, Cycling Through Consent that we share on our Safe Campuses site and also in our mate bystander program mm-hmm. modules, We, in our module that does look at the concept of consent, we use the example of a hairdresser and how when you go to get your hair cut, you say what you want done with your hair. Your hairdresser might suggest things, but they're never actually going to hopefully give you a radical haircut without you okaying that. So it's important, I think, to think about consent in those everyday terms and think, well, we don't think twice about giving consent, about having a cup of tea or making a cup of tea. We don't think twice about do you want to come for a bike ride or not. We don't think twice about when we're at the hairdresser or we're at a restaurant and we're ordering a meal about what that consent conversation looks like. So why do we stop and think about it so much? This should be no different. When we're talking about being intimate with other people, it's probably the most important time for it to be just a normal part of how that conversation flows, but it's not. And I think until we increase... People's awareness and understanding, and I, you know, bring back to that. It's on all of us. It's on all of us to share that knowledge if we've got it, to take in that knowledge from other people. And I think until we can really understand what is sexual assault, what is sexual harassment, and sexual harassment's a big one. It's so complex, and most things I think in sexual harassment have been normalised over such a long time. Um, How can we make people, I guess, make sure that people can identify what these things are and therefore I think that then starts a a conversation in its own about, okay, well, that didn't actually make me feel okay or no, that makes me feel uncomfortable, the thought of doing that. I'm pretty sure that if I'm not okay with this, then it's not okay to continue. So, yeah, I think it's that increasing awareness amongst the the community as well as making it a normal part, like making this as normal as, do you want a cup of tea?
0: And can we talk through even that, that bike riding one which you've chosen on the website? That that is a, a really interesting parallel, isn't
2: it? It is, yeah. So Western University have given us permission to share that as a resource here at Griffith in our education and awareness activities. And I think it does it takes that concept of consent and puts it into real life terms and I think fleshes it out quite cleverly, so I think it gets around that people seem to get uncomfortable as soon as you start talking about sex. So I think it introduces that concept of consent in quite a, a safe way, without making people uncomfortable from the get go. Let's let's people, I guess, have a conversation about what consent looks like in other activities, but then brings it back very, very clearly to when then what does this look like in a relationship? What does this look like when you're talking about sex?
0: And as Patrick was saying before, it might be, you might agree to go on the bike ride to begin with, but you can change your mind. Why is this such a complex issue to get our head around, do you think, Patrick?
1: Well, I think I think it's that, that word that it's always provisional. And I think just going back to something Megan said, you know, like we can, when we're interacting with people, sometimes we've got uh, we might say something to someone or we might even lean over intuitively to touch someone on the elbow or, or, or in COVID times we, we do the shuffle of should we handshake, should we elbow bump or all these things. All those things are about the complexity of consent mm-hmm. and we have our own values. You know, Sometimes we would prefer to have some physical contact when we meet with someone like a handshake or something. But other, other times, other people don't feel okay with that for a whole variety of reasons. It's not because they don't like us. It's not because they, they think we've got COVID. It's something they don't feel comfortable with at that moment. But they might the next day shake hands with you. So it's that sort of picking up on our intuition and okayness with people. And I think the other thing here is is how do we check into ourselves? You know, this can be modelled to other people, you know? Like, we, we all make different faux pas, so to speak, when we're interacting, oh, I, you know, that came out the wrong way or, or, or whatever it might be, that we're actually modelling these things in our interactions. Um, so, I mean, I, I think it, it's how we relate, the relationship that's the real value here. It's an ongoing negotiation. Ongoing negotiation, but also underlined by those those things about respect.
2: I was just going to add, I think it's important too that, that the conversation has evolved as well to not just being about the verbal, but being about picking up on your partner's body language as well or any other person's body language when they're around you, whatever the circumstance is, and being able to, I guess, identify those cues when someone might be physically seeming a little shut off or they might turn away or, you know, pull away from a kiss or whatever it might be, and understanding that that's also part of indicating consent or, or otherwise. And I think that's something that is still quite a new concept and so we've moved yeah. beyond now the no means no And we've moved to trying to educate people and make people more aware of, well, consent is not just about someone having the the courage in that moment to say no. It's actually about picking up on a whole lot of other cues and different verbal responses as well to understand when a person is actually pulling back and when a person is not comfortable. And I think if we can start teaching our kids from a young age, this is what it feels like to be uncomfortable and this is what it looks like, if you can pick that up in your friends. Like if you're playing a game with your friends and and they're not comfortable – then this is how you can notice that and then this is how you can then change what you're doing to make that person comfortable and happy as well.
1: And I think that picks up that point of how do we intervene? How do we interrupt something? And I think, you know, one example is when you're you're in a group and someone makes a a sexist, racist or homophobic joke, how do we actually pull someone up on that in a way that doesn't get them totally offside because we want them to engage but... At the same time saying, we weren't consenting to being around you saying that.
0: So what is your advice in that situation, Patrick?
1: If you're in a group of men and women and a sexist thing is said, it's up to the responsibility of the guys in that group to pull it up. And uh, pull it up in a way that's supportive of both parties. The learning but also the rights and the fact that, that the women didn't consent to be around being put down. And uh, I think having those conversations, but in terms of it, it might be even you know what you might term a cheeky, cheeky question, you know, like how do you reckon that might have felt if you were in um, Nance's shoes at that moment that you said that? What, what do you reckon that would have been like for her? So that reflection back rather than saying, you just said something wrong, you know. And that might start a conversation that's different than someone putting up the shutters.
0: Putting it back on them to a degree, asking them that question. Yeah. Because it is about bringing that awareness, that empathy, teaching empathy and respect. It's tricky, isn't it? How do we do that? Is that perhaps where the, the modules come in a bit that people can access that if they realise this is an area that they're not really great on? Or where does that really start, Megan?
2: Yeah, I think accessing as as many of the resources that we've got available as possible is a really good start. We've and they're a, all on the website. They <laughs> are all on the website. We've got e-modules we've got flyers or you know like tip sheets of how to respond to a disclosure for example Mm -hmm. we've got our sex love dating booklet as well which is all about um what are the signs of a healthy relationship what are the red flags for an unhealthy relationship what do you as a person in a relationship what can you expect what what are your rights in that relationship um and then goes into you know dating and all kinds of things as well so we've got really really great resources available Um, and so i think as much about increasing awareness of the message within those resources. One of our other hurdles has been just increasing the message that the resources are there. And we do really encourage people to tap into those as well. And I think we, we now are at a point where we're delivering things in a way where if people are comfortable and confident to come onto campus and engage with us face-to-face, they can. If they'd prefer to be able to do it in a more private setting, then they can do that through e-modules, through um, reading through the Safe Campuses website, through reading through the resources. At different events, we'll have the booklets, like, you know, paper copy booklets and things available too, so people can wander off with one of those. And I think even that in itself sends a message to others around them that, okay, this is something that they're interested in, they're passionate about, that's important to them, so I need to be mindful of that as well. It's really complex and I think the earlier people can be open to having these conversations, the better. Our demographic is school leavers and beyond I mean, a lot of mature age students as well and so for me too it's important that we're spreading these messages not just for our students but when I think about our mature age students they're likely to have children of their own they're likely to be tackling these conversations as a parent not just as an individual who's trying to navigate a relationship I mean they might be doing that as well but the more we can give people the more we can help people to understand these things then I think the better job that we're doing because it can impact all facets of their life then
1: what Megan's saying is so critically important that we're taking in that diversity of the Griffith community, you know, that we're a diverse community. We're talking about diversity of different sorts of relationships in terms of cultural, in terms of identity, in terms of sexuality, that, you know, often when we think about these issues purely around consent, we think purely about heterosexual relationships and we've got to think more broadly about all the different possibilities in people's lives and I you know I think as a university community having this and the, all the resources available and the continuing commitment is something that we want you know Griffith alumni to ha- graduate with some values about healthy relationships and respectful relationships that doesn't matter whether you're You're a graduate of the engineering school, the film school, criminology, whatever it might be, that you've you've come out with a knowledge at your time at Griffith, there are some value points that we have.
0: And it's not just a piece of paper, not just your education in an academic sense. Yeah. And, Megan, is is it a mix, really, of those publicly available resources but also really getting down to the nitty-gritty of the one-on-one if people find that they need that one-on-one counselling
2: or support? Absolutely, yeah. I think... um if we, I guess, wind back a few years to when Safe Campuses started at Griffith, it was our university's response to the Human Rights Commission's Change the Course report. So
0: That was pivotal, wasn't it?
2: Absolutely. And I think at every university you'll find a version of Safe Campuses. We've called it Safe Campuses here. Others have called it Safer Communities. Others have stuck with more real respect terms. But that was where we, I guess, made our first change here at Griffith and that was in implementing a specialist counselling role. So that role, the Council of Violence Response and Prevention, works with me in, I guess, in terms of project work and in terms of developing and delivering training programs and resources for the web. But also most of the time in that role is spent in providing counselling services to clients. So that is a role that provides priority appointments for students who have been impacted by personal violence. So that could be sexual assault or harassment on or off campus. That could be domestic violence, family violence, intimate partner violence. It could be childhood sexual abuse as well that's historical. And it's important to note as well that that position provides support for people, whether that is a recent event or whether that is something historical in their life that has, if for some reason there's been a trigger just the stress of study at university potentially – And they're now needing support or or they're now aware that they can access support. So that's a really, it was, I guess, a really pivotal role that we introduced here at Griffith way back at the start of our Safe Campuses days. And there's a 24-hour
0: support line I saw as well.
2: We do, yes. We do have a 24-hour support line as well. That's our mental wellbeing support line. So that's available 24-7 for students to access. Um, And staff can access 24-7 support through our Employee Assistance Program also. And all of those details are available for everybody on the Safe Campuses site to find.
0: I think that's good for people to know, isn't it, Patrick? Because you mentioned Megan, like it's—it's it's just been such a difficult, stressful time. I think for people, not with COVID, but in so many other respects, there's been a lot in the news about this topic. Does that bring this to to the front of people's minds a lot more? Do you find, Patrick?
1: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. so I think during this period of different lockdowns than that, we've had time to reflect on our lives, time to reflect on how we might cope with different past experiences there's also lots of triggers like the current coverage in the media maybe even your studies where some things might come back to you and it, as Megan said we, we do really support people to, to come forward and um, uh, get some support and uh, also be linked to other resources in the community and uh, it's never too late to speak out
0: So it's okay to get support for historical things, not just things that have happened at university?
2: Absolutely. Um, And... I guess in, in reaching out to the counselling team for that support they can then um, get in contact with other areas of the university to be providing support around your academic workload if there are any precautionary things that need to happen um, you know if, you, if you're not comfortable on campus at certain times if you need um, extensions or deferrals or anything like that in terms of assessment as well so it's really really important I think that people if, if they're feeling comfortable and safe to do so do reach out and do access that support that we've got at Griffith. I was just to add as well that I guess in, in light of the media that we've had this year our counselling team has actually seen a, an increase in disclosures coming through and the general sense I guess that they're getting from the students that are accessing that service is is that they're feeling more validated.
0: Feeling more validated to hear this, but it does also cause that stress, doesn't it? Yeah. That, yeah. that stressful response.
2: So I think people are being yeah. triggered. They're hearing about stories that are similar to their own and perhaps that is then making them more aware that something that's happened to them that they perhaps did feel a bit off about but weren't quite sure what it was. It's validating that that actually was an experience which of, of trauma and which potentially was against the law. They're also feeling more validated that they're not the only one, that other people have had a similar experience. They're becoming more confident in being able to talk out. They're confident that now is the time that I will access support for this um, and I will start to work through this. There's also been, I I think post-COVID, a theme of students reporting that their home environment is not safe or comfortable for them as well. And I think we did expect that. And Patrick, you might like to pick up on this in terms of research and, and community services last year I know that we did expect that there would be a rise in disclosures once lockdowns and things like that were softened people weren't always safe to be able to disclose that they were in a bad relationship or an unsafe unhealthy relationship at the time when everyone was stuck at home but I know that we did expect to see a surge after that time once people could get back out and could I guess have more easy access to support services and networks.
0: I mean, we did hear that in the news. I think the perhaps obvious effect on domestic violence and that people were trapped in these homes. But is it even wider than that, that COVID effect, Patrick?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and people were at home for longer periods with people they wouldn't spend the same amount of concentrated time with. And so we had increased risks there. And, I, you know, I think what it also covers that that's really important, what Megan's saying is also we, we're engaging on a whole range of different platforms. And so whilst we often think about direct personal contact as, as part of this conversation about consent and harassment, a, a great deal happens online through technology. We all have a phone. It's easy to harass people electronically and, and for even to be disguised as something else. And this is an important conversation in terms of how that adds to people's trauma, how that adds to people's sense of safety, and the also that that has a relevant conversation around consent. You know, by contacting someone, they're not purely consenting that they have to respond. And you know, we we did see this during the COVID time that that reliance on technology. We will bring people into our homes, into some of the very private spaces of our homes in a way we hadn't quite done before. And I think this was a really confronting period for some people and, and we probably saw things that we weren't always expecting. And, you know, that's such a critical issue. It also reminds me about the, the, the other issue here in, in this, is that we really want to get better as friends, as colleagues of how we respond to disclosures. Uh, not everyone goes for pro- professional help. And something we know in the research is that a really poor response to a disclosure is really predictive of a poor mental health outcome.
0: And I suppose that that's where we come into it too, Patrick. It's not just for the professionals, unfortunately, in that case. Quite often would that disclosure be to
1: your friends? Absolutely. And if you think about it, I, I think about it for myself, if something... Traumatic happens to me, no offence against social workers, I'm, I'm one myself or, or a psychologist or a doctor, but I want to tell my friend or my, my partner or my mum or my uh, someone who's a mate that's close. But are they at, up to hearing that is a really key question that we, we need to be better at equipping that because we really do want to get help from those that we're close to who might then need to involve a professional but often we need that support from those who who really care about us
0: so what are the key aspects do you think for how we should best respond to someone who's telling us about a traumatic event in their life
1: well the absolute first one is to believe and listen and acknowledge the strength that it takes to speak out acknowledge that courage stay with them there's not you don't have to solve the problem you have to be there for that person. And that's the key. Don't feel that you have to go immediately into problem solving. Follow up. Believe. Check in with them the next day. Be a good friend who sticks by. You don't have to come up with the solution. What, what we know, what survivors tell us in research, the things that are really important is that knowing the person believed, knowing that person understands some of the courage, and that they felt heard. And those things are incredibly healing.
0: And it empowers them to take the next step if they need it. Absolutely. Is that what you would recommend to, Megan? When you, you must hear when people make that first response as well and the mixed responses that they get.
2: Absolutely, yes. And so we deliver here at Griffith Recognise, Respond, Refer. That's our Responding to Disclosures training. So that is either a face-to-face workshop or can also be completed as um, an online module as well through learning at Griffith. And the key aspects of that are recognising, so recognising what these behaviours are that we're talking about, because those attitudes and behaviours that we talked about earlier, they can have a really significant impact on your response. So when someone says, oh, you know, I was walking down the street the other day and that guy, I thought he was following me, or I thought, you know, he, he called out to me or he whistled at me, my response is either going to be, oh, get over it, it happens to everybody, or, oh, yeah, that can make you feel really uncomfortable when that happens, doesn't it? I'm really sorry to hear that you you experienced that. Are you okay? Can I help you with anything else now? Um, you know, and you can imagine the impact. I guess you're at a, a fork in the road, and which way are you then going to go with dealing with that situation of being uncomfortable? You're either going to get shut down and most likely be ashamed then to ever mention it to anyone ever again, or you're going to go, oh, okay, that's good, I was just validated, they believed me, they recognise that that was something that probably would have made me feel a bit yucky and that's okay. And now I can go forth and, you know, if I need other support, I can get that. Or if not, I don't need to worry about it. The second, obviously responding. So that's all about talking about responding with empathy. It's the listen and believe. It's the offering support. The really important part is acknowledging that that person might not want to do anything else. They might have either intentionally or even accidentally disclosed to you in that moment something else might have been happening and and the story came out and either whether it was intentional or accidental they still might not want to do anything else yet they might have just needed to share with someone else and they picked you as a you know a good colleague or a friend as someone that they felt safe with telling that story to and then the third is referring so it's about then about knowing where you can, I guess, point that person to to get some additional support. So, you know, obviously in our training we cover what the Griffith options are, what some external community options are as well. But I think that's a really important step because I think people will often feel burdened that they now need to take this on, they need to become the counsellor, they need to become the investigator, and they absolutely don't. As Patrick said, in that moment what people need, what what that victim survivor needs is just someone to to believe them and to support them, to be there for them. They just need someone to be there. They don't need an investigator to go and figure out exactly what happened and when, in what order and the other thing that we really do I guess focus on as part of Recognise Respond Refer is that you don't need to know all of the details either. You don't need to ask questions you shouldn't be asking questions. There are certain questions that we absolutely don't want you to ask and that is you know the why type questions well why were you there, why did you go home so late why were you wearing that, why were with them, they're all questions and responses that Take blame back onto that victim survivor so they're already feeling yucky that that's something that's happened they're already probably thinking well how did I get myself into this what did I do wrong and so all of those questions being shot back at them are then going to really really exacerbate that feeling of shame and I guess self-blame so that's the last thing a person really really needs to hear they need to hear the things like you know are you okay how can I support you what would you like to do do you know what your options are? you know, would you like to report this? Do you know how you could do that? Do you know what the options are? Would you like to get other support? You know, I'm not a counsellor. I'm not a psychologist. I'm really happy to be your friend and to help you through this, but it might be worthwhile talking to someone professional. Do you know what your options are? Can I help you find what your options are? And I think that, you know, putting those things together, and it doesn't need to be a long conversation still. You can still have that conversation quite effectively and efficiently, but putting all of those aspects together really provides a really, really effective response. Yeah,
1: absolutely, Megan. And I think one of the things key there from what you're saying is it's about control. We want to give, when someone makes a disclosure, we want to give them control back because when you have that experience of being harassed or, 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 or someone going against your consent in some way, the experience is a loss of control. And so we really want to empower people to have feel like they can regain their, their, their control. And the shame rests with who, who did that, not the survivor or, or victim.
0: Sounds like it's really important to not be dismissive at that critical time. I just wonder for people who are listening, what if they've had this conversation and they reflect now and think, wow, I should have listened in a better, more effective way to my friend. Is it possible to, to go back? What would you recommend to people in that circumstance?
1: I reckon it's absolutely possible to go back and uh, say you've, you've really thought about what they had to say and, and you you think you could have done better, but can you have another chance?
2: Absolutely, and I think that stands also for the conversation we had earlier about you know someone says a sexist joke at a gathering. And in that moment, you might not have felt comfortable yeah. or confident enough to speak up. But I think there's always an opportunity to go back to to someone who, you know, you know was uncomfortable, you know, felt awful about something that's happened. You can always go back to them, and I don't think it really matters how much later, and go, hey, that thing that happened, that conversation we had that day, that joke that so-and-so told the other day, I saw that that really upset you, and I'm really, really sorry that I didn't say anything at the time or that I didn't handle it better at the time is there anything I can do now? Is there anything I can help you with now? And I think that still tells them that, oh, okay, all right. They have listened to me. They've heard me. They've heard that something's happened or they've seen that I wasn't, you know, comfortable with something and they validated that and now there's, I guess, a door open there that I can get support if, if I want it, if I need it.
0: And you you did touch on this before, Patrick, but also recognising that this goes beyond gender lines too. I notice an important part of the program is the recognising of the really specific issues that LGBTIQ communities and, and people face regarding consent, relationships and those complications.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and Megan mentioned the Report from Universities Australia and Human Rights Commission, and that showed that people from transgender LGBTQI plus experience disproportionately more harassment and and greater liberties taken against them, and uh, so we've got to be watching out for for how we. Uh, both celebrate diversity but also what that means and the sort of permissions I think one of the themes that came out of that report that people took took it upon themselves to um, uh, speak on behalf of those groups and so we've really got to be conscious of those complexities and, and, and also that consent really matters for those groups.
2: And our Mate Bystander program covers this really well that it's this gendered violence that we talk of, it's its violence or disrespect against another person or group of people because of their gender or gender identity. And in terms of thinking about male victim survivors as well, it's, it's oftentimes when they don't fit into that man box. It's when they might be queer, they might be questioning their gender identity or have a different gender identity to that that they were born with. And they don't fit squarely into that macho-masculine box and therefore there's something wrong with them quite clearly and they are more feminine and, you know, that's that's a dreadful thing to be, isn't it? Um, so let's put them down, let's make them the butt of jokes, let's direct the disrespectful language and behaviours towards them because they they should fit into this box over here and they just don't. So.
1: And, and really that highlights this issue about power. When we yeah. talk about this, is who has power, and there can be, you know, other dimensions of power such as age. You know, someone much older than another person, or their position within the structure of the organisation is has much more power
0: in seniority.
1: Seniority, yeah. and mm-hmm. these things can cut across gender lines as well. So and we certainly saw that in the work of the, the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, that power is such a critical factor and institutional responsibility is the thing that can stop that.
0: It seems that it, it really has come to a reckoning of sorts, which is a good thing, isn't it? These huge institutional reports, such as the Child Abuse Now, the ongoing Disability Royal Commission, and we can benefit from that, I suppose. Do you think that we are able to talk about this better and this podcast hopefully reflects that?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think we're having conversations we never would have had 10 years ago. And you highlight the Disability Royal Commission. You know, that's such an important national conversation to have that we're hearing about experiences that weren't available to us before. I think the challenge now is we keep these conversations going. Royal commissions come and go, but uh, we need that conversation to continue and to continue through, you know, forums like this podcast, through forums, how we discuss things publicly. Because it's always about getting better at what we're doing
2: to respond.
0: Megan, have you found that as well, that it is... Are people more willing to have these conversations now or we've still got a way to go?
2: Oh, look, I think we've still got a way to go, but I think even watching how the media might report on stories of sexual assault or domestic violence has changed in the last, honestly, maybe three to five years even, not even as far back as ten years. And I think five years ago we had a survey conducted across the sector And in 2017, four years ago, that report was delivered to us. So at the end of this year, the sector again will be um, doing a survey of of students to assess the prevalence of sexual assault and sexual harassment and the impact that that's having on their university life. And so I think then next year again, there'll be another report that's handed to our sector with another set of recommendations for us to focus on, which will keep this, I think, you know, bubbling away on the agenda for, for years to come again. But I think, This year is extraordinary, really, in terms of sexual assault, sexual harassment, domestic violence. And in terms of domestic violence too, I think the way that Hannah Baxter's story was handled by the media and the conversations that it sparked as a result of that and and the work that Hannah's family are now doing in terms of trying to educate people about coercion and opening up that conversation. And I even remember... I. Remarked in a recognised respond refer training session the other day, there was quite clearly coercion going on in Alison Baden Clay's marriage as well, but it wasn't a conversation that I recall having at that time.
0: In those five years or so, absolutely, yeah, I think it's it has. True. It's
2: we we've evolved, and that's. As awful as it is that we have to keep having these events happen and these women have to keep losing their lives, I guess I'm pleased to see that we have... Like, as a community, we've evolved. Our media is reporting things in a more sensitive way and, I think, in a more victim-centric way, perhaps, than would have happened in the past. And I think that conversation about coercion that we have begun really since Hannah and her children were killed has been really really important and i think the more that we can have these conversations the more we can increase knowledge not just about i guess the big picture issues but what what do the intricacies in this look like as well and what do the different types of behaviors look like and how can we be identifying things either in our own relationships or in the relationships of loved ones a bit more early and then be a bit more armed with i guess some knowledge so that we can go in and assist people much sooner. On top of all of that, then this year we've had all of these public disclosures. There's been lots of talk about Canberra and what's gone on there and the need for, I guess, change at that institutional or organisational level. So I think it's really the momentum that I've seen in, in my role this year has skyrocketed. We've hit full pace, and I'm really happy that we've hit full pace. It's exhausting, but I think we need to make the most of that now. So and nice. and the challenge is, as Patrick said, is, is making sure that we then don't fall off again, that we can continue that, and we can continue to really build that momentum, increase people's understanding, increase the likelihood that people are open to having these conversations, because while we can get people into conversations, it's so much easier to affect change.
1: And who would have thought, you know, 10... Also, well, so years ago, the Australian of the Year is a survivor, uh, Grace Tame, and she's you know, very much uh, a strong advocate and modelling an absolute way that we can keep having this conversation. And the conversation isn't about what's wrong with survivors or victims, it's about what happened to them. And that's a key aspect of this.
0: I think of the dreaded milkshake campaign that the federal government <laughs> had. But, I mean, it, it shows people, I think, have come to this which, with a much more nuanced understanding, even at a basic sense, to go, actually, that doesn't really make sense to me. And I don't really see what they're trying to get through to me about consent with this. There are better ways to – more effective ways to talk about that.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It, it, yeah, you're right. and And I think the fact that it got pulled out in a matter of days – shows that. We're, we're, we're onto things in a way we weren't normally.
2: I mean, you think we, within relationships, not everybody has a heterosexual relationship. There are many, many types of relationships that people can have in the community. There are also, you know, very casual kind of, you know, just very brief interactions that people have with each other as well. And I think it it, it also reinforces that what I was talking about earlier, that consent isn't just about sex. Consent happens... Every day, for all of us, uh, 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 on so many different things, it might be letting someone in at the traffic lights. You've let them in. You've said, yes, okay, there's your spot. It might be making the cup of tea. It might be going for a bike ride. It could be any number of things. And each of us, every single day, have some sort of interaction with consent. And most of the time, we don't even think about it. It doesn't even occur to us that that's happening. And so I think cycling through consent I think it demonstrates that really really well that this is not actually just about a heteronormative relationship this is just about life and this is just really important to understand full stop.
0: Well I have to say I think it's really exciting that Griffith is being so proactive in this space and actually really taking a step in this public debate which also as you've so deftly shown is a very private debate as well but we need to talk about it in public with each other in a podcast in our bedrooms in our lounge rooms at dinner parties for this to really take shape and hopefully have a preventative aspect as well is that ultimately i suppose what we're absolutely. looking for here
1: absolutely we, we want this not to happen and and to stop it in the first place yeah
0: thank you so much for joining us megan sharp patrick o'leary fantastic to uh, to speak about this
2: thanks Nance. thanks Nance.
0: that was Megan Sharp, the project officer for student safety and well-being at Griffith University, along with Professor Patrick O'Leary, director of the Violence Research and Prevention Program at the Griffith Institute of Criminology. You've been listening to the It's on All of Us podcast, a production of Griffith University's Safe Campuses Initiative. I'm Nance Haxton.